I'd like you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. There are Bibles in front of you. If you didn't bring your Bible, there are regular Bibles. There are giant print, large print Bibles. I've been asking them to get giant print Bibles because I can't see the large print anymore. 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 22 today. This is the last passage in 2 Timothy. We've been walking through this slowly, and this is poignant. This is melancholy. These are literally the last words that we hear from Paul, right right here in this passage today. So let's take a look at it, then, then we'll walk through it. Starting with verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demos, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books, and, and above all, the parchments. Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. In my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus, remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Putins and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. We spent a lot of time talking about the environment that Paul was in and how the Roman Empire, led by Nero, uh, was experiencing a lot of turmoil. Nero wanted a new city, he burned Rome. That didn't go over so well with the population nor the military. So Nero blamed the Christians. They were kind of an easy target then. They were new, they were actively proselytizing. And so Nero points the finger at the Christians and begins rounding them up. He starts arresting them. And his method is to arrest them and torture them until they give up the names of other Christians in the community. And then he executes those people who, who gave them their friends' names and goes and arrests their friends, and it goes over and over again. So Christians are dying by the thousands. And uh, Nero has Paul and Peter arrested, and he's going to make examples of them. And by then, Paul knows what's going on. Uh, he knows that Nero, nefarious thoughts have caused him to come up with incredibly inventive ways to hurt people and get them to talk. 
And Paul knows that he's going to go through that. He knows that the church is under a lot of oppression. And Timothy's down in Ephesus, and he's left Timothy in charge of the church in Ephesus, and he's a young guy, and he's unsure of himself, and sometimes a bit timid. And so he wants to encourage Timothy, but he also wants to make sure that Timothy's prepared for what's coming. So Paul pens one final letter, and that letter is filled with Timothy. There's hard times coming. Here's what's important. I'm in Rome. They're coming to get me at any moment, and I want to leave with you those things that you need to know in order to go forward from here so that you can lead the church. And I know it seems overwhelming to you, Timothy, but we have help from above, and so Paul is constantly going back to that. So we live in the same type of environment. I don't know that we experience it all the time. We could be a little bit insulated, but, you know, we see the news and, and we, we read the reports and so on and so forth, but the news doesn't always tell us everything, does it? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll, we'll admit that the news can be a little bit biased, depend on who you're listening to. We all have our favorite station because they say the things we'd like to hear, hear them say. But how many of you know that as of January 1st, over 6,000 Christians have been massacred in Nigeria, most of them women and children. How many have heard that in the news? It's genocide being enacted by a tribe called the Fulanis. They're, they're radical Muslims. That's not about Muslims here, so don't, don't let me get off the track, okay? But 6,000 Christians murdered just because they're Christians. And the Fulanis have, have made it clear that their, their task is to get rid of all the Christians in Nigeria. And the neighboring nations around Nigeria are beginning to, to uh, understand that it's not going to stop in Nigeria. It's going to go beyond Nigeria. So we hear a lot about immigration. It's a valid, a valid concern. We need to have a gospel response to the immigration situation. We hear a lot about the economy, and we hear China and Korea and all this stuff. Who hears about the Christians dying in Nigeria? That's the environment we're in. That's the environment that we're in today. So our environment, our culture is no different than what Timothy's going through, what Paul's going through. So we've walked through this book, and we've done it by posing a series of questions. The first question was, do we live our theology? Do we act out those things we believe? And, and the answer is, well, we have to because we're in this battle. Well, we hear battle and go, okay, I'm ready for a fight. Everybody's up for a good fight. So the next question was, how are we going to fight this battle? Instead of talking about the weapons at first, we're going to talk about the characteristics of our warfare. And they are the characteristics of the gospel. We're going to fight this battle with grace and mercy. We're going to share the truth with people. Okay, well, John, that's a little unusual. What are our weapons? I, I mean, you know, I can understand if you want me to pick up a sword or a gun or a bomb or a shield or anything, but you're telling me that we're going to fight with grace and mercy? Yes. Why? What are our weapons? Well, they are unconventional. And the scripture tells us that we're going to fight with kindness, with gentleness, with a capability to teach and express the gospel. 
We're going to fight it by living holy lives. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would we do it that way? Why wouldn't we fight the way the world fights? Why would we do this unconventional type of display? It just doesn't make any sense to me, John. Why fight this way? Well, we fight this way because, brothers and sisters, those of us here who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior have been changed. We've been given new hearts. We've been given new lives. And we are to put that transformation on display, not so that everybody will look at us and go, my gosh, that was a great catechism. You must be such a holy person. But so that we could look at John and say, he's been changed. He's been transformed. I wonder if that transformation is available for me? And our answer is yes. We fight unconventionally because we've been transformed and we want to send the message that that transformation, that redemption, that deliverance is available for all those we encounter. So we don't fight the way the world fights. We fight the way heaven fights. Okay. How are we going to do that? What's it look like? Well, we, we learned three things last week. It, it looks like an exercise of our faith. We walk in faith. Number two, it looks like a strive for holiness, a strive for excellence in our lives. We strive to put God on display, not to put our power and our strength and our personality on display. And number three, we follow the examples of good godly people, men and women, that they've set for us. We walk in their footsteps just like Paul is telling us to walk in his. Okay, so we got all that. We got one more question left. I got it. We're going to fight differently. We're going to do everything we can to portray Jesus Christ to those around us. What happens now? And that's kind of where Paul is. What happens now with Paul? He's fought the good fight. He's run the race. What happens now? So our sermon title today is The Lord Stood Beside Me. This is part seven of Guard the Gospel. It's the last part of our series in 2 Timothy. Paul has lived a life. He's got it all right. Now, it, it hasn't gone well all the time for him. You know, we've talked a number of times about this. By any earthly measure, Paul's ministry is not really a success He's been thrown out of towns. He's been beat. He's been put in prison. Uh, People don't like him. There's a few small churches here and there, but even the churches that he's planted are having difficulties, and it could very easily look like, from Paul's perspective, like things are beginning to fray at the edges. The opposition is rising up. They're no longer welcome in the the, the culture. Uh, The churches are arguing within themselves, sometimes with each other. And so here, what, what happens now with Paul? What does Paul get for all of this commitment he's done, all of this sacrifice he's gone through. What is Paul's reward? And in our passage today, we're going to take a close look at that. We're going to see that Paul is deserted in verses 9 through 14. Then we will see Paul is dedicated in 15 and 16. And then I've got a surprise ending for you on all this in verses 18 through 22. So, 17 through 22. So, I I don't want to reveal the surprise yet because I know you're all going to be amazed. Of course, if anybody read ahead, they're not going to be amazed. So, (laughs) okay, so let's let's take a look at at Paul being deserted. And and here's what I'm saying this is poignant, this is melancholy. Uh, Paul is going to give Timothy 
a description of four types of people that are in his life. So four categories of people that he's dealt with and is dealing with right there at the end. And, and you tell me if you don't relate to some of these, if not all of them. Because the first type are those who left him. Those who left Paul. And that's verse 10 for Damas. We, we don't know much about Damas. He's, been, he's in Colossians. He's in Philemon. Uh, we, we don't know a whole lot about him. But Paul says, he's in love with this present world. He's deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, be careful here because he doesn't say that Damas is a bad guy. He doesn't say that he has abandoned the faith. All he says is he left Paul. Now, we can surmise a lot of things here, but let me, let me give you some of my own conjecture, because I think what happened is, because Damas is a traveling companion of Paul, probably a disciple of Paul, somebody who ministered next to Paul, that he was faithful, he was true, everything was fantastic, they're moving from town to town, and they're getting to preach, and so on and so forth, but things got rough, and Damas split. Have you ever had somebody that was close to you? Good friends? good time buddies, party together, dinner together, spend some time together, and then you get in trouble and they're gone? You ever felt abandoned by someone that you thought you could trust? Somebody that you thought you had something in common with and find out that when you need them the most, they're not there? Damos is in love with the world. What is he in love with? I don't know, but I could surmise he's in love maybe with his reputation. He's in love maybe with his comfort. He's in love maybe with just being at peace. And he doesn't want all this trouble. I didn't sign up for that, Paul. I didn't know that we were going to go to prison. I didn't know that you would need me to come in and visit you in jail. You know they're arresting everybody that the Christians know. If I show up in jail, they're going to take me too. Sorry, Paul. I got to go. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go far away. Do we know anybody like that? Have we had that experience? Have we had that disappointment? Do we have that heartache? And you know, when it happens, we feel so alone, don't we? Whatever burden we're carrying at that point, it seems like that burden just gets heavier. And we think, if only, if only my friend was here, if only my friends were here that I could share with them, I'd feel better but I've been abandoned. We have to be careful with that feeling. We'll get to that in a little bit. So we have those who have left him. And the second category we have are those he sent away. Now, check this out, what happens here. Damas has left him. Crescens, in verse 10, we, we don't know much about him at all, but he's gone to Galatia. Titus, in verse 10, we do know about Titus. He's a good guy. He was left in charge of the church in Crete. Paul knew he could trust him. He was one of Paul's protégés. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Where is Dalmatia? I, I thought it was where they, they raised the dogs. So I, I, anybody know where it is? I had to look on a map too. If you look at Italy, you know, the boot of Italy, uh, you have Italy, and then you have the Aegean Sea, and then on the other side, you have Croatia, just north of, of Greece. So, modern nation of Croatia, that was Dalmatia. Titus has gone there. 
Tychicus in verse 12. Again, he's mentioned four times in Paul's writings. Twice, he's called the, the beloved brother and faithful minister. So this guy's got it together. He's been a valuable compadre of, of Paul. And he's been carrying on the ministry. And he says, I sent him to Ephesus. Now, this is another type of person we have in our lives. There are people that in our lives we're close to, and they leave. For whatever reason or another, they have to go somewhere else. And those are the people that we cry over when they leave. Those are the people that we regret seeing them go. But maybe we're just a little bit excited because God is doing something in their lives. And so they go with our blessing. They go with a little bit of sorrow. We're going to miss them. But they go and we bless them on their way. These are the guys we're talking about here that Paul has sent. So he's, he's got the people who left him, the people he sent, and then the third type is those who are faithful. Those who are there through thick and thin. Those who, it's, it's one of those people like, you feel like you, you're meant to be together. There's, there's some sort of spiritual bond. There's some sort of, of intimacy that you have with them. And you know you can depend on them and trust them. And that, that among them is Luke, faithful companion. Luke was so close to Paul that uh, almost all of the theologians believe that Luke's writings, Luke and the book of Acts, uh, were heavily influenced by the time that he spent with Paul. So we got Luke, and he says, uh, he said, Luke is here with me, kind of, but he's in prison, and Luke's not. So, you know, we don't know what that looked like. But th then, then Paul says something amazing. He says, bring Mark. Bring Mark. Now, look, there, there's, there's hope in this, because Mark was a companion of Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to leave. They had had an experience with Mark. They took Mark with them, and Mark left them. He was a young guy. Mark left them, and that upset Paul. We were planning on all of us going here, and Mark, Mark left us. So Barnabas and Paul are getting ready to move on uh, from Antioch, and Barnabas wants to take Mark, and Paul says, no, we're not taking him. We can't depend on him. And Barnabas and Paul have a big fight. And it's over Mark, and Paul is offended by Mark. So that happens relatively early in, in Paul's career. And look, here at the end, here at the end, he's saying, get Mark. He's valuable to me. He's helped me in my ministry. Do you know what's happened is somewhere along the line, reconciliation has occurred. There was an offense, and rather than carry the offense, Mark and Paul have gotten together as brothers in the Lord and reconciled their differences, and now they're both working for the glory of God. So this change has occurred, and we need to be able to understand this because every one of us in here has had some difficulty with somebody. Every one of us in here has had some strife. There's been some offense with somebody. That can be healed. You don't have to carry that around. You don't have to bear that burden for the rest of your life. You don't have to worry about if God asks you to write a letter, what are you going to say about that uncle, that aunt, that father, that mother, that brother, that sister, that cousin, that person you used to work with? What are you going to say about them? What you can do is say, you know what? I had a problem with them, and we reconcile. The Spirit of God in me has healed that. Now, to do that, we have to express a little bit of humility. We have to own up to our part in whatever that offense is. And you know something? Even, even if you didn't have a part in it, 
We have to demonstrate our spiritual maturity and extend that olive branch. Extend that branch of forgiveness. Reconciliation is available to us. We don't have to carry this burden around. And we see that in the way Paul talks about Mark. So bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. So we have those who have left us. We have those who we sent away. We have those who are faithful. Paul doesn't really dote a lot on them. He, you know, I think he wants us to see those examples because he knows that we can relate to them. Uh, but he gets to what's important. I mean, he doesn't go into details. This person did this and this person. There's just a mention of this and a mention of that. Uh, So he gets to what's important. He says in verse 13, When you come, Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now, Paul is in a Roman prison. And these places are dank and dark, and they're just nasty. And he's cold. (laughs) And he says, Timothy, uh, can you bring my coat? But here's the encouragement. He's facing the end of his life. This is Paul, theologian of theologians. He says, bring my books. Oh, I love that. I love that. I got a chance to talk to Jerry Bridges one time before he passed away. And when we were done, as he was walking away, I said, well, wait a minute, get, give me something. You got something for me? He's 84 years old. I was 62. And he says, young man, I'm still learning. And I'm like, Jerry Bridges is still learning. Do you realize what Paul's showing us here? Is that we can continue to grow even as we face our final days. That our walk of sanctification, our walk of knowing the character and nature of God, our walk in understanding the word of God never ends. That we will always grow. There's always something for us to learn. We don't really arrive at the place that everything's perfect. I've got all wisdom. I've got everything. There's always an opportunity to grow. Paul says, bring the books, but above all, bring the parchments. Bring all my materials because I want to read and write. I want to get sure that the message keeps going out. And if there's anything I get to do with my last days, I want to write of the glory of God, and I want to learn of his character and nature. I love this. Because in the same situation, I'd be like, get me out of here. Paul wants to grow. And he says this. We move on to the the fourth type of person. We haven't talked about him yet. But this is somebody who's done him harm. It's not just an offense. This is somebody who's hurt Paul. Hurt him in his mission. Hurt him personally. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, understand this moment. And... as we understand the context of it, we can understand the fullness of what's happening here. Because here's Paul's chance to vent. You know, some people left me. I sent some people away. There are a few faithful here. But let me tell you about this Alexander. <laughs> and we have this tendency to do this, don't we? When times get tough, we have a tendency, just as human beings, to point the finger It would be very easy for Paul to say, you know, that Alexander, if he didn't do what he did, I wouldn't be here where I am. It's his fault. Get him. Get him, Timothy. 
throw them out of the church, do, turn them over to the, to the uh, uh, authorities so that he can go through the same thing I'm going about through. Make sure we get our pound of flesh out of Alexander. It's his fault, and I want to see him hurt the way I was hurt. Do, are any of us familiar with that feeling? I've had it. Let me tell you the problem with that feeling. I, I, I've been hurt by people. You've been hurt by people. Here's how it goes. You get hurt, and, you know, my first prayer is always, well, Lord, forgive them, because I want to be holy. And the worst part about that is sometimes he does. <laughs> and, and, and then that kind of aggravates me a little bit. Okay, well, that probably wasn't the right prayer, because I still feel rotten, and it looks like they're doing pretty good. So I go, okay, Lord, bless them. But usually that's followed with a comma by helping them see the truth. I want them to see the truth, you see. And that doesn't work either because the Lord usually blesses them. And that makes me feel even worse. And then I'll go, well, Lord, uh, I release him to you. As if the Lord's like, oh, yeah, like he's yours. And that doesn't work either. And, and I'll tell you something. I, I, I have to keep going back to this all the time because it's not until I get down on my knees and say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me for bearing the offense. Forgive me for being angry. Forgiving me for wanting vengeance. Forgive me for wanting retribution. Forgive me for wanting to see them have their comeuppance. Forgive me for asking you to show them that I'm right and they're wrong. And I'll tell you something, when you get to that point, you can feel the burden being lifted on, off of your shoulders. And the problem we have with reacting with bitterness and hate and anger towards those people that have hurt us is it damages us, not them. It becomes our stumbling block, not theirs. And we carry this weight around, a weight that we're not designed to carry, a weight that Jesus died so that we could give it to him, and we, we stroke it, and we, we do that, don't we? We take our pain out, and we show people our pain. Look at this pain. I've been hurt. Do you know what this person did to me? Isn't this magnificent pain? Look, if, if I touch it, it gets a little bit bigger and more profound, and now I can talk about it some more, and, and we get consumed by it. The lack of forgiveness. And we've been forgiven so much. That's why the burden crushes us after a while. That's why the bitterness turns us dark after a while. We refuse to release it. We hold on to it desperately as if that's what is supposed to identify us. Look what Paul does. He says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul says, I don't have to deal with this. This is between him and God. God will take care of him in any fashion he, need, he sees fit. And I can release it. Now, he, he's not naive. Paul's, Paul's not painting a happy face on, on what he's gone through. He wants Timothy to understand that this man can be dangerous. He says, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. But even in that, there's something we could learn because Paul doesn't say he strongly opposed me. He's not making it personal. He doesn't say he strongly opposed my message and the message doesn't belong to Paul. He says he talks about our message. He's talking about the gospel. With Paul, it always gets down to the gospel. 
And he's cautioning Timothy because Alexander can be a threat to how he preaches the gospel. So here's Paul at the end. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. I don't, I don't think Paul's complaining here. I think he's setting Timothy up to teach him another lesson. Paul knew Jesus Christ. Paul knew his teaching. He knew everything he said. So Paul says, here I am alone. Paul knew that Christ knew what it was like to be alone. And if you think about Christ's ministry, you know, he walked on earth for about 30 years or so. And when he finally stood up and began ministering, it only lasted three years. But it started with a profound splash, didn't it? Next thing you know, there's miracles, signs and wonders being made. Uh, people are getting fed. Uh, crowds are following him. There are thousands of people following him everywhere he goes. He goes out into the middle of the, the, the wilderness out of nowhere, and, and thousands and thousands of people go to listen to him. They're so far from town, they don't have food. And there's a concern about whether or not they can get back and get food. Jesus says, oh, don't worry, we'll just feed them right here. And Jesus multiplies the little food that they have and feeds 4,000 and and 5,000 at the same time. When you really look at the numbers, it's somewhere around 16,000 and 20 to 25,000 at the same time. So he, he does all these incredible things, and people just love him. Everybody is thronging to him. Jesus Christ is the first evangelical celebrity pastor. Everybody wants to hear him. They want to be like him until Jesus says, now, we need to get down into the nitty-gritty here. I know you enjoy all these blessings. I know you like this teaching. I know you like the signs and wonders and everything, but if you're going to follow me, you need to be like me. You need to be one with me. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. None of them thought that Jesus was inviting them to be cannibals. But they all understood that Jesus was inviting them to be like him. And he was a guy who had no pillow. He was a guy that had one pair of sandals and a tunic and nothing in his bag. And when they heard that, they went, you know what? That's not what I want. And the next thing you know, Jesus is abandoned by almost everybody. And when he finally gets to Jerusalem, stands up and says, all these festivals and everything are about me. Uh, I am the fulfillment of everything you've been celebrating for the last 1,700 years. They arrest him. They torture him. They put a cross on his back and have him march down to Via Della Rosa and he's so weak that he can't even carry the cross. When he gets to the hill at Golgotha, they lay him on the cross, and he nails him to us, and Jesus is utterly, totally, devastatingly alone. Paul knew that. And Paul has been encouraging us and those who read him to follow him as he follows Jesus Christ. Paul says, here I am. It's the end. You know what? I'm alone. I'm alone. But I know one thing. I know that Jesus made a couple promises for me. He said, he said to me, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said to me, I will come back for you. 
He said to me, in me you will be resurrected. So Paul's not really alone. He may feel alone. That feeling may be real to him, but he's holding on to the promise of Jesus Christ tighter than he is his feelings. He's saying, I'm going to rely on the promise that Jesus gave me. I'm going to trust him that I'm not alone, that I don't have to go through this by myself, that my friends may desert me. I may send people away. Even the faithful may may be hard to find me, and there may be some among them that hurt me, but I'm not alone. Jesus Christ is with me. He said, my my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. He's not carrying the bitterness and anger. He's not carrying the self-sorrow. He's letting it all go. So what what is the end of Paul's life? What is the result of all this dedication and sacrifice? And you look at the things he sacrificed. Paul has sacrificed his reputation. He's probably sacrificed his family. He's probably sacrificed his comfort, uh, his right to be angry and bitter, his right for revenge and, and justice, his need for retribution. And we look at that and it sounds maybe weak and maybe non-productive, but here's the sound, the, the surprise ending. All of this is happening in Paul's life, and Paul is delivered from it. 17 and 18. Not really a surprise for those of us that know the the biblical narrative. But we look at it, and and all of a sudden we begin wondering. You know, Paul's told us again a couple of times, I've been content in all circumstances. How is he content? How can he be content in this situation? How does he know he's delivered? Well, he's holding on to the promises, and because he's holding on to the promises, he can say in verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. You see what he's got? He's got a hold of Jesus Christ. He's like Jacob. He's saying, I'm not going to let go until I get the blessing. I'm going to hold on desperately no matter what happens. I'm going to trust in Christ. No matter what it looks like around me, no matter what I got to go through, no matter what they do to me over the next two days, my trust and my faith is in Jesus Christ. I've got my eyes on eternity, and I may hurt real well over the next couple days, but I'm going to tell you something. When I look back on this, when I look back on those couple days of hurt, it's going to look like rubbish compared to the glory that I'm about to experience. Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Now, why? I mean, if you're saved, if you know Jesus Christ is Savior, you have the same promises. He will stand by you and strengthen you. Why? Have we done anything to earn it? No. Are we worthy of it? No. Well, the first answer, and this is, this is true, the first answer is because he loves us. God loves us. Amen? I I love that. I love that God loves me, loves all those who believe in him. He loves everybody, but there are consequences for those who don't. That's great, but there's something far deeper going on here. And here's another thing we've talked about before. If God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us so that we could be with him, why don't we just go to him when we get saved? I mean, that would be the smart thing to do if I was God. You know, well, I got that person saved. Yep, come on up to heaven. You're done, okay? But he leaves us here. He leaves us here. Why does he leave us here? Is he being a nasty God? Is he being a mean God? 
well, I don't know, I'm going to make you pay for some of that stuff you did, so you can't come up yet. That's not what's happening. So that through me, the message, Paul says, might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. He's there because he is a messenger of the gospel. He's saved because he is a display of the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ. He's there to tell people about the transformation. God leaves us here so that we can tell people about Jesus Christ. Everybody. Paul says, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I was surrounded. It looked like I was going to get torn to bits. It looked like there was going to be nothing left of me, and it looked like my death was going to be slow and painful. But so I was rescued. He talks as if it's already done. That's how much he believes in it. Then verse 18, he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Did you hear that? Safely into his heavenly kingdom. This is a guy that knows that at any second he can endure unbelievable torture and will. You know what? I don't like the idea of the torture, but I know what lies beyond. And I know that because God promised it, I'm already there. And I may scream and holler because the pain will be real but I know where things are going to end up. Look how deep Paul's faith is. It's absolutely incredible. And then he says, to him, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He does it all for God's glory. So what now for Paul, back in his context? Well, he's deserted, but he's dedicated. And because he's dedicated, even though he's deserted, he is delivered. Well, what happens to me? I mean, the pattern's the same. Look at what we've learned from 2 Timothy. Look, look, look at our question. Do we live our theology? Do, do we, we just read this and think it's nice things to say? Or do we act it out? Well, we have to, because we're in this battle. How are we going to fight this battle? Well, I, I don't know exactly how we're going to fight it, but I know that it's going to be with grace with humility, with mercy. We're, we're going to fight it with the gospel. What are our weapons? Our weapons are kindness and capability to teach, patience and gentleness. Why do we fight that way? Because we've been transformed and we want people to know that that change is available to them. How are we going to do this? How are we going to fight the battle? We're going to do it by exercising our faith. We're going to do it by pursuing excellence and holiness in everything we do. We're going to do it by following the example of godly people before us. What will happen to us? You know what? Because of our commitment to that, we may feel deserted. We may, we may have to prove that we are dedicated to it. We may have to put our dedication on display. But we will be delivered. We are the recipients of the same promises that Paul has received. And why would we do all this? So that we can guard the gospel. So that we can guard the messenger that we've been given so that we can tell other people about Jesus Christ. He finishes with this. I, I, I mean, this, this is just so beautiful because he does this, to him be the glory forever and ever, amen. And then he goes into the ending, the, the benediction type of thing, and, 
And, you know, you could skim over this and go, well, that, he said the important stuff before this. But I want you to see this. In verse 19, Greek Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Paul knows he's not going to make it. He just wants Timothy to know how much he thinks of him. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus uh, sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers, saying, look, the body's still the body. It may be under siege, but there are a lot of faithful people out there, and you need to know about some of them. And then Paul's last words. As far as we know, this is it. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Paul says with his dying words, I have been the recipient of incredible grace. And if I could leave you with anything, Timothy, it would be to have that grace pour out on you. And he sets the example for us. We are to become vessels of grace. We have been forgiven. Forgiveness should flow from us. We have been shed mercy upon us. We should shed mercy on those around us. We have been redeemed. We should speak of redemption to those around us. Vessels of grace. Vessels of grace. What do we do about the 6,000 people that died in Nigeria? Oh, we'll go over and fight. We'll get them eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What do we do? This is, this is it. This is the answer. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer for Fulani's. You think about what would happen if we went down to Washington, D.C., and instead of picked up, picking up a, a party card and doing a march, we would just stand there and share the gospel with people, in particular people that aren't like us. You know what? We could go over to Nigeria and witness the Fulanis, and they could do something terrible to us. Isn't that what Paul just went through? I mean, every time Paul gets in the jam, what does he do? He preaches the gospel. He stands before the authorities that can forgive him. All he's got to do is tell one white lie, and they're fine. No, nope. he's got the king going, well, you know what? He keep on preaching to me. I'm going to become a Christian. And Paul says, yeah, you and everyone else. If I had my way, he preaches the gospel. The gospel's our answer. That's the message of 2 Timothy is guard that gospel with all that we have and all that we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the beauty of Paul's life. We thank you, Father, for this image of grace that we see in him, Lord. We thank you for a man who somehow uh, is content in all things, and we thank you that even as we put that question on our minds for the last eight months, Father, we find the answer here, uh, that it's because your son has stood beside him and strengthened him, Father. We pray that we would have that same commitment, Lord, that we would receive the same blessing and we would receive the same type of strength, Lord, that we might boldly be proclaimers of the gospel that you've given us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.